Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. What's up, y'all? This is Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Today, we've got Scotty Kessler from Faith International University. This was their first track session at last year's forum, and Scotty gave an awesome talk about prayer. He kind of goes off on a tangent on the very beginning of this podcast episode, and it's just beautiful, the things that he says about prayer, specifically the kind of prayer that drives back darkness enough for there to be a movement of God that will give us sustainable evangelism. People coming to faith and staying in the faith. Earnestness and persistence in prayer that changes things. After the break, he jumps into defining what a disciple is and how they should live and act in the world. This is great stuff, so make sure you stick around for that. I hope that you enjoy this episode. This is Scotty Kessler from Faith International University. Well, good afternoon. Let's uh, begin. Uh, Intro, my name is uh, Scotty Kessler, and I'm the director of the Robert Coleman School of Discipleship at uh, Faith International University and Seminary in Tacoma, Washington. Live in Omaha now, uh, work as an adjunct prof with the school and still direct it. Have a wife and three kids, um, two grown up. One's playing college football, one's coaching college football, and then we got a little eight-year-old daughter. So... Little family of five and not going to be empty nesters for a while, it appears. So, uh, This breakout session is called Discipling Biblically the Master Plan Way, What It Is and What It Isn't. Uh, there's going to be two breakout sessions on each day, this one here at 2.30 to 3.30. Then there'll be a break, and we'll have the second session. It'll be sequential. So this first one is going to be Discipling Biblically What It Is, and I'll make a, uh, some brief comments on the necessity of prayer. And then the second session is going to be discipling biblically what it isn't, uh, and the one that follows. And then we'll talk. I'll talk a little bit longer on the necessity of prayer in this thinking, at least in our opinion. And then tomorrow it'll be a repeat: uh, one session at nine, excuse me, one session at eight, and one session at eleven. Uh, let me start off by saying I am not an expert in evangelism and discipleship. Don't purport to be. I am working out my a salvation with fear of God. I, I anticipate you're in that same category. Dr. Robert Coleman, who's uh, my mentor in these things, he says, uh, he starts off often by saying, I really don't amount to much, but I do have a great Savior, and I really like that. And uh, that's that's kind of how I would like to approach this also. Let me open in prayer for us. Lord, thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here. I thank you for any of those that will wander in possibly uh, still coming. Lord, you have the people here you want here for what you want to say to them. You're our teacher. Teach me. Teach them what you want to teach us today. May we hear what you want us to hear, and, and may what is not for now, for whatever reason, may just fall away, uh, Lord. But we do ask that you accomplish your purposes and achieve what you want to achieve during this time together. Help me uh, speak clearly. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Um, I'm going to begin with a little preface. We call it discipling biblically. That's not to say that other discipleship is not biblical. It's just we we came up with that phrase uh, because of these driving questions. What What did Jesus do with the twelve? According to the Bible, what was Jesus doing with the 12? And why did he do it that way? 
Um, you know, why did he do it with them continuously, pulled them away, it seems, for three years, pretty much continuous? Was there something in that? Were there principles from that that we can uh, draw some conclusions? Uh, his discipleship obviously stood the test of time, crossed generations, it crossed cultures, crossed geography, reached us here, we're here because of what he did with the 12 and the reproduction of that over you know, a number of centuries. And uh, he had a plan. And that's why uh, you know, we call it the master plan, the master plan of evangelism, discipleship, the great divine marriage of evangelism, discipleship. He did it without resources, which is fascinating. It's so opposite of kind of our culture where we feel we need money and stuff and technology and uh, TVs or videos and marketing plans. And uh, his plan was that he was going to use men. Um, men and women, people are his method. And his plan was the only plan he had. He didn't have a plan B. This was his plan 2,000 years ago to reach what now is 8 billion people on the planet. It was an intentional plan. He, he did it uh, for a reason. It was strategic. Uh, he had a way to go about it. And it was going to last until he returned and the amount that he had chosen before the beginning time would be in the fold. This was his plan to reach the world. We probably wouldn't have thought at that time it was a great plan, 12 unschooled, ordinary men. Uh, he uses unschooled, ordinary men and women. Um, he, it's his power, not our power. It's his agenda, not our agenda. It's his will, not our will. And this was all embedded in his plan. That's a preface. Let me step aside now and talk about prayer. John Wheeler is uh, here with me right right there. He's the, the dean of admissions at the school and, and uh, vice president. And we talked about this issue of prayer. Uh, you know, and, and my comment was I'd be remiss if I didn't mention on front end that in, in our opinion, um, if there isn't a commitment to what would be, I think, my, my impression is a radical commitment to radical meaning more indifferent than currently is the pulse. I'd say in our country. I mean, I was saved when I was four. I grew up in an in a orthodox, conservative, Mennonite church community. I walked with God as best I could, given how they did it back then uh, in that particular denominational kind of community. It was solid. It was biblical. Um, I, I understood Jesus as Savior. I really didn't begin to understand lordship till I was 23. And 22 when I joined a football program at a place called Pacific Lutheran University where they created a culture that people could work out their salvation and fear with, trembling, with fear and trembling if they wished to. And at that point, the Holy Spirit, by His grace, grabbed me and started moving me in a direction of uh, He's not looking to be Savior alone. He's, he's King of kings and Lord of lords, and He's asking for um, a, a complete surrender is His minimum request. And so I'm saying that to say in my journey, um, and, and thankfully in the goodness of God, I didn't have fall away. I didn't have, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm flawed and I had years of disobedience, but I didn't reject God or steer from him in those years. I'm now 64. So for 60 years, I've attempted to walk with God. And in that, and since 22 or 23, which is another, you know, four years, I've attempted to be in the river as fast as I could be in in terms of knowing him and knowing him more and be used by him. I'm just trying to give context to say it's my sense then after this uh, body of time that we as legitimate Jesus followers talk a lot about prayer and believe in prayer, but we really aren't committed to it in a way that costs us much, certainly not time. And there does not to see a link between the intentionality of believers coming together corporately. That's two or more. Whether, you know, I was on staff for a church a block years. I've been involved in parachurch ministry. I was a layperson, a football coach, college football coach the majority of my adult life. And often in, in, in uh, organizations that were led by believers, believing head coach, etc. 
and and I would say there really hasn't been the kind of commitment to the kind of praying that I want to allude to today and in the next session that would be necessary to drive back darkness. Uh, not to the degree it has to be driven back for there to be a move of God of sustainable evangelism, meaning where people actually come to the faith and stay in the faith, let alone are obedient, let alone reproduce themselves and even attempt to fulfill the Great Commission. There just is not a pulse, in my opinion, and just observing the lay of the land. A lot of talk, uh, not a lot of do. Um, and, and that's part of what I think this conference is about, is, a, is an idea that what Jesus did with the Twelve and, and disciple-making is something that um, has not occurred the way it could have, should have occurred. And so there's this move to bring like-minded people into the room to stir us up so that we might stir ourselves to be about the Great Commission, to go and make disciples and baptize and teach them to obey. And so um, I, I'm interjecting this conversation about prayer in the midst of discipleship because in my observation, um, there is a tremendous assault of darkness to get people to not pray long together regularly. And, and there is not, and this part of this conference's reason, it's MO, uh, is, is that uh, there is not, people are not making disciples. They're, they're, some of them are making converts, um, but they're not making disciples. And if they are, they're not making disciples who make disciples. They're making disciples who follow and don't actually obey the Great Commission to make disciples themselves. There may be a reason for that. Uh, the reason for that may be that the dark side it doesn't, can't afford for that to happen. He knows he's dead, but he's working a delay game. And one of his delay games is to deceive us, get us busy, uh, distracted, doing good things instead of obeying. Um, this is my... This is my personal contention, and it's why we and our community, our network in our circles, we'll talk about circles in a bit here, in our circles, we're trying to, to stir ourselves up and stir each other up about the Great Commission and to go back and think about what Jesus did with the Twelve and the why and the how and how that can impact us. Uh, when I say that there appears to be a dearth of, of uh, prayer. I'm not talking about general prayer. Uh, I'm talking about what we call long praying. Now, please don't hold me accountable to this being a gigantic doctrinal mosaic, but let me just paint a picture. Uh, in Gethsemane, when Jesus with the twelve, with the tw uh, three, and he pulled them aside, and he said, I'm going to go off here and pray, you know, can you stand watch? And then, of course, they failed at that multiple times, and he came back and said, can't you, play, can't you pray an hour? You know? I mean, as if there's nothing magic about an hour. It's like 61 minutes isn't infinitely better than 59 minutes. But, but he did use that terminology. And so we talk about something we call long praying. We just call it long praying. It's not a Bible verse. It's just we call long praying, praying for an hour or more uh, with others, that two or more, regularly. That's what we all call. So when I talk about long praying, or I talk over Q over Q, quantity of force over a quantity of time. When I talk about that, that's what I'm alluding to, is praying for an hour or more regularly together with others is, is, is either a lost art or it never was uh, in terms of a across the spectrum of legitimate professing believers has not been part of their DNA. Um, and... And that, that would seem to be a major problem. Um, here, here'd be how I articulate. There's different kind of knives. There's a butter knife, there's a steak knife, there's a scalpel. They're all, they're all knives. They'd be under the general, general category, but they have entirely different purposes. Butter knife, you butter bread. You try to butter bread, if you try to do that with a steak knife, I mean, it cuts holes in the bread, it's not clean, it just doesn't work. Scalpel, you, you wouldn't even think to do that, right? But if you try to do heart surgery with a butter knife, the guy's gonna die. Fair? 
If you use a steak knife, which is a ton sharper than a butter knife, and it cuts steak, it's, it's not helpful in bread, and it's going to kill the guy in surgery. So there's all kinds of prayers, right? you got kind of general praying, Lord, bless this day. Thank you for this meal. And then we have prayers that might be for others, a little more like, Lord, heal them from the cold or the flu or the thing from that. And then, you have, then we have this prayer that I'm going to call scalpel praying, like, God Almighty, move on Afghanistan and shift that nation and raise up laborers, oh God, the harvest field is plentiful. Oh God, move on them. Move on them underground, oh God, in Jesus' name. That's, that's different than, Lord, bless this meal. They're both prayer. They both qualify. They both have legitimate place. But there's different kinds of prayers for different kinds of situations. Crying out to God. There's something to cry. I, I found it intriguing. I remember years ago when I looked at a concordance of all the times it says cry, crying, cried out, anything with loud or noise, etc. It was, it was almost a direct correlation Then when people cried out to God in some way that was more indifferent, God moved almost simultaneously or significantly. It was like boom, boom. And it fascinated me that there was something to earnestness and persistence that did something in the invisible world different than other kinds of things. We know that even in the natural world. I've got an eight-year-old daughter. If she says, Dad, 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 I'll think, I'll get to it. You know what I mean? I'm working on something. Dad, can you come here in a second, right? But if I hear this, Dad, I move. I move immediately. I don't need to understand. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. There's a cry to the father that only the father knows, or mother, of their child that moves him. There's that kind of praying also. Desperate praying of that nature is more indifferent than other legitimate things. That's all I'm contending. I'm making a proposal to think about something. So we call long praying, scalpel praying for an hour or more at a time regularly together with others. Biblical example, you got Jesus, spent all night in prayer when picking his disciples. He prayed uh, and, and fasted uh, for blocks of times, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses, we have a human who actually somehow pulled off a 40 day, appears to be no water, no food deal. Somehow, you know, bypassed the laws of nature with that, with not having liquids for that long in a dry climate. Prophets and kings called for days of prayers and fastings. The disciples in the early church, we have a record of this kind of praying when something was desperate and they knew they were dependent. We have the testimony in the last 500 years, the Moravians who prayed for 100 years, 24 hours a day. If you ever studied the Moravians and know about them. And we have examples of old time saints. I have some books I'm gonna show at the end here that I recommend. One is by a writer that's my, my personal favorite, a guy named E.M. Bounds, who's written on prayer unlike anything I've ever seen of anybody. It's not doctrinal stuff. It's not religious stuff. It's just practical examples, his story, and the testimony of the saints in our, in our country, in the United States of America, or in the British Isles, that kind of legacy of the founding of our country stuff in the last four or five. Who are the men and women of God that prayed freaky? amounts of time regularly and saw stuff happen more indifferent than we see. This is, this is the contention. In our view, Q over Q, long praying, I just, Q over Q, it's just, a, it's just terminology to say. Quantity of force over quantity of time. If I was trying to move a heavy object and I use a lot of force, but I only do it for a second, uh, it, may not, it may not move, fair? And if I just touched it lightly, and I did it for like a day or a week, it ain't going anywhere either. Is that right? But if I use a quantity of force and I stay at it, that thing is going to move. I can't tell you when and I can't tell you how. But if I apply the correct force, over time I get movement. That's how the invisible world works. It's Daniel praying 21 days and fasting until an angel comes down and says, from the first moment you called my name, I heard you, but a bad guy got in my path. Thank you for continuing to pray with force, fasting and prayer. And now I'm here. 
I heard you from the first moment. 21 days later, I'm here because you continued to pray. I called Michael to help me, and I was able to break through listens. I'm here. What happens if he'd only done it a day? What happens if he'd prayed and not fasted? What happens if he stopped at day 21? This is all speculation, but the principle is that a quantity of force applied over a quantity of time did something in the invisible world that God just pulled back the curtain on as an example to say, this is how you play the game. And we can say that was radical and unique, and that will affect us if that's our view. But if we consider that normative and a singular example, then that will affect our view. Does that make sense? So in our view, uh, this kind of praying is the most critical component in spiritually energizing generational impact of evangelism discipleship. That means it's sustainable, it'll last, right? It'll reproduce itself so after we're dead, it continues if the Lord doesn't return. If we're selfish, we're not concerned about sustainability, we're only concerned about our life. Uh, if we're selfish, we don't think about continuity and generations because we're, we're not going to be there. But if we have God's heart for the generation, then we approach these things like he approaches them that has to do with things that we may never see with our physical eyes. If we don't have a relational, intentional, that means on purpose, strategic, that means have a plan, simple, practical plan to pray long regularly. If you don't have a plan, it ain't going to happen. If you wait for time to pray long regularly, it will never happen. My primary mentor in sport-related stuff, my, my college football coach, he said, nobody has time. Nobody has time for costly things. They make time. They make time for what matters. We will always make time for what matters or what we're forced to do. But if not forced to, and if we wait till we have time, it won't happen. So what are we doing? This is the questions John and I in our community asked about. What are we doing if we want to be used by God to move in a supernatural way that prayer and evangelism and discipleship happen in our circles in a way that could be reproduced in other circles to the ends of the earth until the end of time? That's, that's, that's how we were evolving in our thinking on these things, and that's why we felt like, I need to interject this, because we can talk, you're, you're great. you could go to, what, 20 breakouts, and 20 more, and, and 15 minutes, and, and 40 more tomorrow, and they're going to be all talking about all kinds of different aspects of this diamond called discipleship, and we can all come away with ideas and notes and cool stuff. For the record, if you want notes on this stuff, just email me, and I'll send you all the notes. You don't need to write anything down. You can get all this stuff if, if you wish to, so you don't have to... Uh, get distracted, no writing. Um, uh, this, this matters. Matters to him, matters to us. What are we going to do about it? So why is this critical? Because demonic resistance to the Great Commission lifestyle, people, individual believers, actually having a heart to and acting upon a desire to see people come to Jesus. It's hard enough to get them to care about it, right? Let alone take an uncomfortable action step where fear is involved. Right, and to invest in somebody in an intentional, strategic way over time, so that they can get nurtured in their faith. These are these are things that people usually leave to the church to take care of. They themselves don't disciple. They expect the church to do that. Bad plan. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but against demonic forces, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces. This is the game. He's saying this is the game. It's an invisible game. It involves created invisible beings that have supernatural power and you have no chance left to your own devices regardless how smart you are and how much resources you got. It will not move the ball. The God of the sage is blind in the minds of the unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. These are demonic blinders. You can't take them on with nice articulations and charismatic preaching. They're demonic blinders. They come off with weapons that are not of this world. That doesn't mean we can't and, and need to be competent and responsible in articulations. It just means if all you do is talk and just pray, it's going to be gravel. Because these are demonic blinders that have blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see. 
and they're taken off not with great exposition. They're taken off with the weapons that are not of this world that don't have to do with eyeballs and ears, but have to do with those things that can open or close eyeballs and ears. This is our contention. Now, uh, another caveat. This is a way to think about it. It isn't the way. We're not implying that this is the doctrinal position you need to consider or do. This is our conviction and our desire and our heart. But I'm proposing it as a way to think about it. And, and if you didn't, I wouldn't be hurt because you got to do what you got to do. And I got to do what I got to do. And we're all going to be accountable to God individually for what we've done with what we know and he's given us. And so please, though I am dogmatic in my articulation at times because I got to have conviction, I hopefully have high conviction with high humility. If I don't, that's problematic. If I have humility without conviction, I'm going to be passive waffler. If I have uh, great conviction without humility, I'm going to be arrogant and it's going to be disgusting. It'll be about my increase and not it. So I'm toggling. But we're sharing this with conviction and the humility to say, you're welcome to agree to disagree at any point. And, and, and we would say, go get them, man. How can we help you reach your goals and your desires to live and follow the Great Commission? Let me return now to, uh, well, just that final verse of 2 Corinthians 10, where the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. The strongholds they were referring to were invisible. That wasn't the talking about we need to get over Iran, right? Uh, this is not about Iran and North Korea and closed countries. This is about demonic forces in our country and every country of the world that are demolished with weapons that are not of this world. And they have divine power, combination of the word of God and prayer. And all we're saying is, in my opinion, in America, in legitimate church circles, there's often a tremendous legitimate emphasis on the primacy of the word of God and its inherent and infallibility in the original language. not with a scalpel, and often not with a steak knife. We have been deceived as a Western world about how the game is played and what are the tools and weapons in that game that actually move the movers and shakers who are invisible, that impact us visibly. That's our contention. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. So let me return to discipleship. That was my caveat. I wanted to make sure because the second session is going to be more about the prayer piece and less about the discipleship. I just, we didn't want to wait to the end because you know how it is. You run out of time and then you say, it," And I didn't want to have to do that. So uh, what is discipleship? We're going to talk about the what, why, and how. Now, what is discipleship? Discipleship means many things to many people. Obviously, you walk into any of these rooms around here today in any breakout or in the session, and there's going to be all kinds of shades on the rainbow about discipleship and how to go about this, how to go about it. And uh, generally, I think this is a fair comment. I've tried to travel in this circle as best I could for 30 years. When, when the first time the Holy Spirit opened my eyes through a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism to a writer called Dr. Robert Coleman, that's when, I, for me as a believer, I was 37 years old, when I first began to get a sense of what making disciples meant, 
more than just have a Bible study with people, which was my previous thought, because that's all I'd ever seen or heard. And so when this, when this door opened in my mind, uh, things shifted. But in general, when people talk about uh, discipleship, they're talking about the ball moving forward in an individual believer's life in some way toward maturation, spiritual maturation. Is that fair? The ball moves forward in their life toward being a mature Jesus follower would be a generalized view of the word discipleship. Disciple, follower, follower of God, a disciple, a learner. That's another translation in the Greek of the word. Our contention is that Jesus' intent when he worked with the 12, that it was, he, he meant it to be more than something than those 12 guys having generalized growth and knowledge of him. It wasn't about them and them knowing him more. It was about that, but it wasn't only about that. His intent was to make an investment and a deposit in those few that they then, when filled with the Holy Spirit, would reproduce for perpetuity until the Lord returned or they died. He didn't return, they died. And then their disciples reproduced disciples who moved the ball forward in all kinds of various ways, and here we are. Anyway, you cut it, we're the fruit of those 12 over two generations, excuse me, over two centuries. So our contentions, Jesus was thinking about more. His core verse, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we call it, you know the core verse. But just think about it, just go make baptize, teach them to obey. All action words. I'm not going to get into heavy, you know, Greek, Hebrewish stuff. It's just, it was a commandment. Commandment. That's my point, is to say, we have to think about this in our own life, because it starts with us. You can't give away what you don't have. So we have to think about how we look at this, because this is going to produce fruit in how we articulate it or what we do with others. This commandment was meant for all Jesus' followers, that they all were commanded. It was a minimum standard of obedience. Picture that now. I would contend, I suspect you might agree, that in a local church anywhere in the country, the amount of people legitimately are even thinking about or taking an action step, whatever it looks like to them, of making disciples who make disciples would be a small percentage of humans in a local church in general. Maybe more or less than others, right? But at somebody, some point, somebody had to get this if his community was going to get it because uh, odds are better it's going to come from the leadership down that it's going to be spawned from the flock, although that can happen, obviously. It was not an optional activity. And yet it's become an optional activity. It's become an optional, completely optional activity that you could walk for, with God for decades and vertically connect and acquire lots of knowledge and maybe actually obey, which is different than knowledge acquisition, and yet never be obedient to the Great Commission. The thing he said before he left the planet, by the way, I'm going to leave now, go make disciples. So his, his kind of ending thought to move his flock, 500 or so, was to go make disciples which now 2,000 years later is exactly what doesn't happen. That would be a gap that we're here to close, right? That's why we came to the thing, I reckon, eh? So regardless of our personal definition of discipleship, the commandment still exists. The question is, what are we individually going to do about that verse? Are we making disciples right? Regardless of what it looks like and what that means and the how. The how is where there's lots of disagreement. The what and the why are pretty distinctly clear. And there's not a lot of disagreement about that. What discipleship, we can see that from definitions from the, from the Greek to know what that is. And the why we would understand to be, uh, well, God said so. And out of love for God, who gave himself up for us and said, go and do likewise, we would understand it due to the power of love and from a commandment of obedience, that's the why. That should be enough of a why, and the what is clearing up. It's the how that there's lots of, what does it look like? What does making a disciple look like is where there's a hairball of, of lots of different thoughts. Rightly so, because if I asked everybody here, raise your hands if you have any children at all. Okay, so I'm, most, I expect that. And so, so how do you raise children? What's your philosophy? What does it look like? There'd be as many 
answers, as there are people, there'd be certain core, regular things that happen. So, you know, respect authority figures, do what you're told, uh, treat others better than yourself. You know, Bible verses, the, the Ten Commandments in child version. We, we all kind of hopefully had that part of our, our philosophy, though we may not have put it down on paper. But in the midst of it, how you treated when they get a cell phone, what their time to bed, what the morning, you know, we got all kinds of different opinions about that. Rightly so. Discipleship is like spiritually parenting, and thus there's going to be as many models of spiritual parenting making disciples as there are people. But in general, prayer should probably be part of making a disciple, and the Bible should, right, should be part of it, and they should have some kind of plan to reach the lost. And, and so there's going to be these things that are accepted norms, and then there's going to be a bunch that are unique to our own story, our experience, etc. That's similar in how we raise physical children, and that's also similar to how we raise spiritual children. We see evangelism and discipleship as two sides of the same coin. This is a super important distinction. Uh, my impression, again, from my time in the body of Christ over time, is that there is a freaky misunderstanding of the God-ordained interaction, interplay of evangelism discipleship. There is an incredible amount of effort and intensity and notoriety on evangelism. And there's virtually no plan, lip service, to the actual raising of the person once they raise their hand or come up forward, etc. It'd be normative that at your local church, somebody makes a commitment, somebody gets a phone number and they'll follow up and ask them to a small group, they'll invite them to a beginner's class, they'll give them a book and a little packet of gifts and stuff, we'll wish him well, he'll go back to his hellhole of whatever his life is, etc., and we'll check in maybe for a week or three, but for the most part, that's our follow-up for a brand new believer as all hell attempts to take that seed and pluck it, according to the parable of the seed, the moment they leave your building. Even Billy Graham, who we'd consider a father in our generation of legitimate evangelism, I may be wrong in the percentage now, I was trying to Google it before I came in, that he found in their study and that after those 5,000 people came up in a crusade, that one year later, 60%, 40% were still even confessing Jesus. Just think about that. That's not a good stat for the body of Christ. In America, we tore our culture to crap right now over a pandemic that has killed one quarter of 1% of our population. And we don't seem to care at all that 40 to 60% of new believers don't even stay in the faith for a year. And we haven't thrown body of parts around as believers to solve this. We consider it, uh, oh, geez whiz, that's not good. So in the natural world, we'll, we'll change our country forever for a quarter of 1% of death and we will not budge over 46, who's going to be in hell forever? Does it even matter to us? Does it move our heart? Does it do anything to us? This is, this is the gap of blindness that we're attempting to diffuse, disable, and reorient one person at a time. Though evangelism and discipleship are distinct, they're meant to be in complete unity and interactive. They have got to be viewed together. When treated separately, this is not the divine intention. Think about it even in the natural world. There's a day that a human is born, and then they have a life. We memorialize the day they're born with a regular party or celebration. That day is necessary, because if there is birth, there is no life. But that birth does not matter at all, frankly, compared to the life. Is that fair? 
Comparatively, if he has a bad birth, it's traumatic, it's, that's, that's, not, that's, that's, that's not good. But if he goes on to advance the kingdom and move and make disciples and be obedient, that's a beautiful thing. Bad opening day, tremendous end, finish strong. But if his birth went well and everything was great and her life is in the toilet and they partner in unadvancing the kingdom and they themselves go to hell and fight their brains out to take others with them, celebrating that birthday is, is kind of immaterial. Two different things. One is necessary. The other matters a lot more. Wedding days. We invest time and money and attention to this beautiful ceremony that sometimes now lasts 20 minutes, right? And has gobs of money and attention and spend virtually no time preparing them for the future, let alone have any follow-up after that initial burst of four or six uh, pre-marriage counseling, right? And, and, and the waste of broken marriages and broken families and the generational impact of that is beyond comprehension grievous to God and even to us. And yet we, we still throw all our cards in the deck on that day and virtually just stand back and watch to see what's going to happen with this marriage and family and the legacy of that family line. A complete disconnection that that birth and that life, that wedding and that marriage are integral. you got to have a wedding and you don't have a marriage. Maybe justice of the peace, but there is a wedding day. But what matters is the marriage and the continuation of the family line produced by that marriage, right? It's the same in evangelism and discipleship. You have to be born again. But if born again and snatched that night, plucked by Satan, or the roots don't go down, and you die, or you get choked by the word, I'm parable of seeds here, you following me? Parable is you're choked and have no fruit. Only one out of the four seeds is obedient with a culmination that God willed and provided for. Three legitimate seeds that could all have been the fourth seed. All were disasters. Two of the three going to hell, clearly. One of them appears to be no fruit, which is not a good day. And I don't know how that plays out on the great throne judgment about not being obedient, not having any fruit, and going to the Lord. Okay? Point is, three are not good. One is good. What are we doing about that? In churches and as people, what are we doing about this marriage of born again and the life that is so time-consuming and costly and hard and uncomfortable that few will pay that cross spiritually? Though we will with our own blood, generally as families. We'll let them stay in our house for 18 years. We'll stay engaged with them. They'll have this transition year in America, whether they go to college and work, and then they leave and cleave, whether they're single or, you know what I'm talking about? So we got no problem spending 18 years with the same kid in our household, hopefully doing the best job we can. But to a brand new believer, we give them a book and invite them to a small group. That's insanity. And we're talking about eternity. That's insanity. Would you ever do that to your own kid? I got an eight-year-old daughter. I know how I feel about her. See you on Sunday. Maybe pick you up for Wednesday night for an hour. Wish you well. Hope you can navigate elementary school and feeding yourself and staying out of trouble and somehow would, <laughs> would never. If you got a brain in your head and any health at all, you would never approach your blood kids like we address his kids, his flock that he entrusted to our care. We're haphazard and have no plan. And yet about our kids, we have at least some semblance of a plan. Something, something got messed up, man. Something got messed up in the translation. Whew. Evangelism matters. Discipleship matters. 
I'm going to go out there on a limb. A lot more. Because being born again has to happen. But as soon as it happens, it's now infinitely more important what happens next for a long time. Both are critical. One is linked to eternity. That, that conversion, we're going to wait to see if it germinates, right? Is that fair? Parable of the seeds. We're going to wait to see, is it plucked? Are the roots die? Is it choked? Or does it, right? And if they're in our circles, we have a responsibility to be part of that raising process. This is a grievous, grievous thing. Are we grieved about it? And what are we going to do about that grief? Core verse from the epistles on discipline. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul's talking to Timothy, says, The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, entrust to reliable men and women who are going to teach others also. Paul, the spiritual father, is talking to his son, and he's saying, what I'm pouring into you, Timothy, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about those that you serve and those that they serve based on how you serve them. Four generations in one verse as a picture of what Jesus meant from working with the 12. You 12, you're going to live and die. It's going to be a costly deal. I'm going to lead the way and show you how to do it. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to say, go and do likewise. You give your lives away, they did, to others and teach them how to surrender. Not just get converted. Don't just evangelize them. Lead them to me and then take care of them long so that they don't get snatched, don't, the roots go down and they don't get choked. Till they can reproduce themselves and then teach them to do that also. That's how you reach the world. Paul the father, Timothy the son, four generations in one verse, generational discipleship. Begs the question, Dawson Trotman talks about that, founder of the Navigators. Who's your Paul or Paul's, and who's your Timothy or Timothy's? Is there a human that when that question is asked, you can say, oh yeah, this, is, this guy or these guys were my spiritual fathers for seasons, and, and here are my spiritual sons. They know they're my son, and I know I was their father, and now that they're grown off and gone off on their own and have their own sons and daughters and sons and daughters and sons and daughters, for a window of time, we functioned in this role as a spiritual father who shepherded the flock under his care, beyond his household. Beyond his household. This is about his body. We call it generational discipleship because it impacts generations. We call it biblical discipleship because we're looking at the principles and the, and the picture of Jesus and the twelve. In our discipleship, we talk about Q over Q. We talk about Q over Q in prayer, a quantity of force over a quantity of time. Next session, I'm going to talk about what does a quantity of force look like in prayer? Practically, what does a quantity of force look like in prayer? But now we're talking about discipleship. Q over Q is still our terminology to get our people to think about a quantity of relationship over a quantity of time. Discipleship is a parenting is a quantity of relationship, right? 18 years in America for the most part. 18 years, transition years, they're off their own. Do we not have relationship with them anymore after they're gone? No, we stay in a relationship forever. It just changes. It's different in the first 18 than it is 18 to blank. And then it's different from blank till the end. Isn't that right? But the relationship continues. It's just highly different in the different stages. It's much more intentional and strategic in the early vulnerable years. That baby who's born is going to die within days if left on the table. Is that fair? Poop and barf and no food. That's what happens in the body of Christ. People convert. They come up front. Nobody knows their name. They do it on a radio. Nobody's even there knows. They don't follow up. They had a, something happen and stirred in them. They're back in their normal life or hellhole life, whatever the case might be. We're all excited with the notches on our belt that we got these numbers, these measurables about how many converted. It's like being happy about wedding days, saying, I married 57 people. 
Now, I know 37 of them aren't together anymore, and the children are screwed for generations, but dagnabbit, I serviced 56 marriages. We'd look at that guy and say, he, he's an idiot. Right? Uh, excuse me, fool. He's a fool. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to use that word. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. We use the term Q over two. Quantity of interactions. Quantity of rub. We call rub. Relational rub. So, so I have these times with my children where it's real intentional and other times it's random because they're around all the time, right? My 26 and 23-year-old, I, I call them occasionally, we polo regularly, I text and email a bunch, and I interact him when he comes back home. They're all out and about around the country. Does that make sense? But my 8-year-old is there all the time. My wife and I know every moment of every day where this daughter is for like 12 years She's never at a place that one of us doesn't know where she's at. Can you see the ferocity in the nuclear family of how parenting looks like? Can you see the gap between how the body of Christ views parenting of new or young believers? We don't know where they are after they leave the building or what they're up against and don't have urgency to find out. And as soon as it gets complicated, we want to bow out because we want to get on with the ministry. And he said, that is the ministry. David, who was very flawed, very flawed, was honored significantly because he shepherded the flock of God, Israel, with integrity of heart. David was a shepherd boy. The Lord used that to teach him how to be a shepherd of his people, Israel. The first time the shepherd is used in that sense, it's used with David, who was the shepherd, though flawed, just like we're flawed in our shepherding. He was the shepherd. The good shepherd, David a shepherd. Peter, remember Peter? After the resurrection, they're having this conversation, pretty accountable. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Take care of my... He didn't say, make sure you preach well. Be a good articulator of the gospel. Did he want that too? Of course he did. Of course he did. Before I go, I got creation that are my flock. Take care of the little ones. Take care of the big ones. Feed them. Care for them. Provide, protect. Provide, protect. Provide, protect. Provide, protect. That's the job of discipler. Provide, protect for a block of time until they're nurtured to the point of maturity that they can function without direct continuous oversight to where they can then reproduce themselves and begin to spiritually parent. The cool part in biblical discipleship is that can happen weeks after their conversion because you're still in relationship with them as a spiritual parent to make sure as they parent those they've led to lore or those in their circles that don't know Jesus or do know Jesus but don't have a parent, they're orphaned, that they can come alongside other orphan believers virtually immediately under your supervision as their discipler father or mother. If you want, you know, the how is where people... What does discipleship look like? What do you do when you meet with your men or women? What's that look like? Um, uh, I'm not going to talk about that now because of time. Um, our operating system is we have habits and spiritual dis disciplines that are all sustainable. They're reproducible. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, learning the books of the Bible through a corny little Gilligan Islands Bible song, uh, presenting the gospel, leading somebody in relation with Jesus, five questions about evangelism, discipleship to keep them praying, we have these 10 habits and spiritual disciplines that are good whether you're a baby or you're old. So anyway, just because of time. Let me just address the board, see what we're talking about here. This is a huge deal. Nah, man, I'm going to probably spend more time on the next session because it's one thing that I think in discipleship in America right now is we're working at this process. This is the best time. More conversations about this kind of stuff than any time in my lifetime, certainly in my adult years, are happening about discipleship. What does it look like? What's the what and why? How do we do it, et cetera? But there's a big, there's my opinion, there's a huge misunderstanding between addition and multiplication. Huge. Like freaky huge. It's problematic. It's not sin. It's just problematic. 
because there's, there's books written about multiply. There's lots of talk about multiplication. You're probably going to hear it from the platform a bunch. A lot of conversation about multiplication. But, but the goal is reproduction that continues. It becomes a multiplication. You don't multiply somebody. He reaches somebody and reproduces him. He reproduces him. He reproduces him. And multiplication occurs as reproduction continues over time. So just for the record, in year one, if I'm working with a guy, there's two of us. In year two, if I got another guy, there's three of us. I did it 30 years, there'd be 31 guys that are walking with God. That's a good thing. 33 years, there'd be 34 guys. If I did the same thing, same amount of time, just looked at it differently instead of addition, I thought about reproduction that multiplies. In year one, there's two of us. In year two, there's four of us. In year three, there's eight of us. In year 10, there's a thousand. When, when there's 30 years, you got a billion people touched. Unschooled ordinary men and women in your local church. Nobody knows their name. They're doing labor jobs or they're whatever they are. If you understood biblical discipleship and reproduction and you worked with just one person a year, and you can do more than that because you're working with one, you can work with three or five, and you taught them to go and do likewise. So I meet with you and then the next year I meet with somebody else and you meet with somebody else the next year. I meet with somebody else. That guy meets with somebody else. If it reproduces, just doubles itself, the number one, when doubled 30 times is a billion. If I'd said, you know, off the top of your head, what do you think if I double, if it's one and then two and then four, if I do that 30 times, what do you think the number would be? People usually say, mm, 500,000. It's a billion. 30 doubled is a billion. That's why he didn't care about measurables. He just needed 12 guys who would reproduce themselves and teach others how to reproduce themselves. This is addition. I have a small group. I'm using hypotheticals, hypotheticals. There's 10 guys in a small group. There's usually a leader, and then there's a co-leader, and then they get too big, and they say, we got to grow. So they start another group, and eventually that's got 10 guys. The co-leader is now the leader over there. That's addition. That's addition. 20 becomes 30, 30 becomes 40. In a local church, I know a church in Omaha that's gazing 1,000 people in the last year. Let's say they do that for 30 years. That's 30,000 people. In America, that'd be a megachurch. There's no comment about whether any of these 30,000 people that are new are following them. Does that make sense? There's not a follow-up mechanism. They just are growing because they got great music. They got great, it's a great place, great place. It's not an indictment. I'm just using the principle. Having 30,000 in your church because you grow it a thousand years is still addition. It's still addition. If it goes 10 years, it's 300,000. If it goes 30 years, it's, what am I right? 900,000. This, this homemaker, this guy that just works as a mechanic, he's just working with one a year, but he teaches how to reproduce. There's a billion people in his net. A billion is better than 90,000, right? And we don't even know if these 90,000, even if they have a spiritual parent, but we know that each of those billion have somebody following up with them because they were reproduced by a spiritual parent. That's the math. And if you look at the math here, 10 becomes 100, 100 becomes 1,000. This is not about measurables. This is about a plan and a principle to reach the world, the remnant and the chosen, one at a time, who reproduce. And as they continue to reproduce, poof, it becomes a multiplication. You don't multiply individuals. You reproduce individuals, teach them to do likewise. You continue to supervise and follow up. And over time, it starts small. I lost my job because in discipling this way, there was not enough movement of humans. If he stuck with the plan, there would have been enough movement. But people want to see it now. They don't even care if the people are nurtured well or parented or shepherded. They just want to see movement of more people and groups and stuff. It's twisted. Circles just means this. When people are praying for people to come to the faith or thinking about who they can come alongside. I, I very rarely work with people I've led with the Lord. I've discipled a lot of people over time. And they, God willing, many of them are actually reproducing themselves. I mostly work with orphan believers. That means they were saved for a year or five or 30 and nobody walked with them. And so their habits are poor. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, learning how to use a study Bible, sharing the gospel, leading somebody in a relationship. They're incompetent because they went to a building once a week and maybe to a men's group where they learn about stuff 
and had knowledge acquisition that did not turn into obedience because nobody was overseeing them, overseeing them, responsible for them. This is just a diagram. I can get you all this stuff. These are so people, they just think, who do I even know who's unsaved if they're church people? Or who do I even think is out there that I could come alongside and say, do you want to meet regularly and let's grow together in the Lord together and let's, 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 let's meet other people and teach them how to go and do likewise. That's what we use to get people who have expanded vision to open their eyes. Finish with this real quick. Um, a business card here. This is, this is only to say if you want to have a continuing conversation. My benefit, our benefit of being here is the people we've met here that we've stayed in dialogue with. Super fun. Super fun. So if you want to have continuing dialogue about that, um, I have a website there that's got all these documents on them. And, and you can reach me by cell or email. I'll, if I can help you reach your goals, I'd love to. I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm saying this matters to me because it matters to God. And he said, shepherd my flock and I heard him. I never had a shepherd. I was never discipled. I winged it on my own. I bloodied my lip and a whole bunch of people's lips. And then the Holy Spirit opened my eyes in my 30s and said, there's a better way. And he said, now you do with what I showed you. And it really was the master plan of evangelism of the Bible. For me, it was Dr. Coleman's book that caused me to think, right? So tool-wise, these are my recommendations. The, on this thinking, this is the benchmark book in the world, not my opinion. Master Plan of Evangelism by Dr. Robert Coleman. He's going to be here tomorrow at the last session. He's 95 or whatever. He's the patriarch in this movement. He's Billy Graham's sidekick. He looked as a 28-year-old seminary prof. What did Jesus do with the 12? And is there anything we can learn from it that we can approximate? That's what that is. Another book that's very good, founder of the Navigators, not the founder, but a, a sidekick, a guy named Leroy Imes, The Lost Art of Discipleship. You can come up and look at these. Uh, prayer, I talked about that. I'm going to talk about it next session. E.M. Bounds. This is a compilation of the highlights of E.M. Bounds' book. E.M. Bounds was a guy that lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he, he was an intercessor. Here's, how much am I? I got two minutes? Okay, here, here's a line about intercession. People that, that think about praying and praying in a committed way that's costly, um, they usually think, well, that guy's got a gift at it. Intercession and being a prayer is not a spiritual gift. It's obedience. Don't say, oh, they're an intercessor. No, they didn't give special juice. We got the same Holy Spirit. He led the way, showed the way, moved people to lead the way, and he said, go and do likewise. It's a decision. It's not a gift. You decide what you want to do about it. But don't pass off people that pray a lot and say, oh, they got the gift. It is not a gift. It's a decision. And intercession is not one of the 13 or whatever in the book of in the epistles when they talk about the different spiritual gifts. Um, oh, Lord, show me what else. 30 seconds, God. Um, there's a great website called discipleshiplibrary.org where you can hear Robert Coleman and Dawson Trotman speak in audio clips because these are old generation guys. Discipleship Library dot, dagnabbit, it's going to be .com or .org. Discipleshiplibrary.com or .org. There's a thousand speakers there and all their sermons on audio. These are old, old time people. Just go to Robert Coleman, Dawson Trotman. Robert's probably got 25 messages on there. Uh, if you go on YouTube and you put in Robert Coleman, you're going to get the master plan of evangelism, him teaching in 20 minute clips each chapter. Again, any of this stuff, if you, if you forget what I just said or you can't find it, sell, uh, text me, email me, and I'll get, you, I'll get you more than you ever wanted if you want resources because we get asked this, thankfully, a lot. Um, It.com. It.com, my fault. Okay, thank you. Okay. Lord, anything else? Lastly, you want to cover. Thanks for the brothers and sister. Thank you, Father. Lord, um, I gave it my best shot. You do what you want with it. Forgive me, Lord, for uh, anything. You came off with the wrong heart or the wrong words. Father, bless these men and women. They're here for a reason. They wanted to hear something. Give them something, oh God Almighty. Bless these men and women. Bless them. Bless them with the blessings of God. Make them fruitful. Make them fruitful. 
all their days, O God, that we may have many crowns to lay at your feet. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Resources up here, our operating system, our how-tos called the Big Ten, Ten Habits. John's Church actually put this book together. Feel free to look at this stuff. Here, if you want Dawson Trotman, this is the best little booklet on reproducing reproducers. Dawson Trotman, it's called Born to Reproduce. You can go online and get them for 50, I think it's 50 cents a piece. It's probably five bucks for, I'm sorry, five bucks for 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 20 for 10 bucks. So I give this to people when they hear this conversation. They go, I never heard of that before. We give it to them. Dawson Trotman explains this so simple. And it's, it's a fantastic little teaser book. Lord bless you. Lord bless you. Thanks for coming. That was great stuff from Scotty. I hope that you enjoyed that. Stick around for the next episode. They'll be doing track sessions number two and three coming up next. I don't know about you, but that episode really inspired me and also convicted me. and made me kind of feel like I've just been playing games at prayer, and I don't want to do that, and I'm sure that you don't want to do that either. So I hope that you'll join me in living out these convictions as we commit to being more serious about prayer life, about fighting the battle before we disciple others in prayer. That's awesome stuff. All right, well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you'll come back on the next one, and I hope you have a great day.